Welcome to Off Good Ireland Podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking to the not-so-secret midwife around all the hidden and not-so-hidden topics around midwifery. Please like, share and subscribe. And if you'd like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or a membership at the link below. Thanks a million for all the support. Off Good Ireland is pleased to welcome the not-so-secret midwife to our podcast tonight, an experienced midwife and whistleblower who realised that the medicalization of childbirth is indeed the biggest crime against humanity. Outspoken and passionate, she believes every mother should be empowered and comfortable in the knowledge of the birthing process. After all, it is one of the most important times in a woman's life. Tonight, the veil will be lifted on the secret world of the birthing process in Ireland. The not-so-secret midwife will explore and navigate parents and new parents to be around the whole pro- around the whole process of childbirth in Ireland, giving, ev- giving everyone practical tools to empower them on the path to parenthood. The not so secret mi- midwife, uh, welcome to Orchid Ireland. Thank you very much for that. That, that sounded really good, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to thank Patricia for that. She's very good at that. <laughs> I do recognise some of the words, you know, but. Uh, that that sounds good and and that does really sort of encapsulate what my journey has been all about you know for well for the last couple of years anyway you know excellent stuff do you want to give us a bit of a, a bit of a background then and um I, I have some questions here as well yeah well i am shauna here i'm from lurgan in the north i'm a mum of four and a nanny to one and uh I started training as a midwife in 2004. It was something I always wanted to do. You know, it's every everybody who loves babies, that's their dream job, you know, and that was that was always me. Um, so I came in as a direct entry midwife, which was a challenge to some people in the system. You know, I never was a nurse. I just went in as a midwife. And uh, most of us were mature students with a bit of life experience and a wee bit of common sense, you know. So even from the very early days of my training, I realised things weren't, maybe as they were supposed to be, you know, they certainly weren't as we as what we were learning in the books sort of thing, you know, and that theory practice gap became more evident during my training. But um, me being me, when I seen something that, I, that didn't sit with me, I would have asked questions, you know, which you got away with as a midwife or as a student. But once you became a midwife, people didn't really like that so much. And my questions, I suppose, got louder and louder over the years. Um, in relation to everything, all all parts of the process, all the interference, I could see that that women and their families, you know, they were being interfered with from the outset. You know, now it's only in the last couple of years that I've really realised the enormity of that. But even back then, I would have been questioning things like selective inductions, you know, and um, and don't get me wrong, a lot of parents were asking to be induced as well, not knowing really what they were letting themselves in for. And uh, elective cesarean sections and first time mummies and stuff like this, and these things were were nearly like so blasé. They were just part of everyday life, you know. Nobody really questioned as why these things were all happening, and if you did, then sure weren't you a troublemaker. So I was labelled many a thing, but um, I was a union rep then as well within the system to try to help me understand or help try and find a way to make things a bit better. That didn't really help either, ultimately. But um, since I resigned, which is two years ago now, I've actually realised so much more about what it was all about, and none of it's none of it's very pretty. But I do like to work with solutions, and I do think there are other ways forward. 
and I don't think we should get lost in the in the sadness of it all, if that makes sense, you know. We are where we are. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely no, we definitely have to stay positive. Sorry, we just Sorry, don't we forget, just forget we have to mute up the mic so we're not speaking because I've been and getting a double and getting double feedback. Um, I have questions here. The, the girls have some really good questions. So we'll just tip off. We'll just stick it off from the first one. Um, there has been a lot of talk about an increase in miscarriages, uh, stillbirths and other issues in pregnancy. Um, as a result, well, you know, the suspicion is over the interventions over the last three years. Have you witnessed anything that's verified that or have you heard any stories? Um, oh, absolutely. And um, my journey into vaccines and pregnancy really started in earnest in 2017. Um, I always had a bit of a wobble, you know, once they introduced vaccines and pregnancies, they didn't happen when I was having my babies. They started introducing them shortly after I qualified and it never really sat well with me, but I just wasn't sure why. And then in 2017, baby P came into my life and uh, baby P's mummy was carrying her second child and I knew her from her first one. And she came in to me, I was working night duty in this dressing room at the time and she hadn't felt the baby move all day. And I done the usual ask question, you know, to try and ascertain why her baby might not have moved. And she told me she'd had her flu vaccine the day before albeit she'd had it reluctantly. And when I did get to the bottom of the story, she'd only had it because they'd actually rang her three times. And by the third time she gave in, went and got it. That was a Friday. And the Saturday she presented to me with a still, you know, her, her baby was dead in utero. And uh, through the journey from that day forward really led me to realize because the, the coroner ruled his death an unexplained stillbirth. And I couldn't understand why. But my understanding now and my knowing now is they don't they don't relate the stillbirths to the vaccines because they don't ask on the stillbirths, you know, on the paperwork, was this mother vaccinated? So they never rule it in, so they don't ever have to rule it out. Um, so, yes, I have huge concerns about vaccines and pregnancy. Over the last couple of years with this other new vaccine, as they call it, um, the miscarriage and stillbirth rate has magnified you know you'll never get the right answers out of them as to how many people have been affected but but know that the the figures have gone through the roof and uh but they'll, they'll not come to the conclusion that it's vaccines unless they actually ask the question when they're when they're looking at their studies was this mother vaccinated because i put it to you even that if you look at any of the sudden deaths right you know over the last couple of years was this person vaccinated even was this person medicated you know i would give you a 99 percent yes you know, does that answer the question, or did it go away? It, <laughs> it does indeed. Um, see here. Um, we have a couple of more questions for for the baby for those babies born to mothers uh, who received the said interventions while pregnant. Have you noticed any other anom anomalies, like more babies in the NICU? Well, bear in mind, I haven't worked with any any of this in the last two years, um, but I do know that you know there obviously there's still babies in ICUs, you know, every day of the week, um, and some of the anomalies I've heard about, I wouldn't even discuss on here, you know. But you, and we have seen it before in history with things like thalidomide, you know, there's actually no telling anyway how far-reaching anomalies may or may not be. Because the reality is these vaccines carry what's called an unknown risk, unknown. 
literally means anything can happen and we may not see it all straight away you know um there are some birth anomalies there are some miscarriages there are some stillbirths more than normal but the reality is we won't know for a very long time the extent of the anomalies sadly yeah it's um it's a big worry. I, I was reading a Substack yesterday from, uh, I think it was Igor, I think it said Igor or something, his name is on Substack. And like you said there a minute ago, it's very hard to get the real figures and the real information on, say, if, is there a drop in fertility or, or birth rates? But what he had done was he went on to Google Analytics and he had searched for, he put in the search term maternity wear and he put it over the five-year moving average say, on Google um, Analytics or Google Trends or whatever it is. And basically there's a 15% uh, drop off in in searches for maternity wear in the US over the last five years. So, like in the last, well, like when you average it out over the five years, there's a fifteen percent drop in the last year. So, like I look, that's only anecdotal, but you know, we, we won't well, know. Well, it's not, it's not really, you know. And people, I I done the research myself for a couple of years, and people sort of tend to dismiss anecdotal evidence, but the reality is, anecdotal evidence generally goes down to phenomenology, you know, what people actually tell you themselves, because with baby P, I know that my story as such of that baby was written off as anecdotal, non-anecdotal about it. That was that mummy and that baby and her child, you know, they, these were facts just because they can't lift it and go, right, this transfers to a million people doesn't make it any less important. So actually the the fact that people are, the less people looking for maternity where speaks volumes. And I will say, even in the last 10 years of my practice, I noticed a huge rise in assisted fertility. You know, young men and women coming in, having to have, you know, IVF or ICSI or whatever it was we're having. You know, that's strange because men and women are on this planet to procreate. You know, that's what we're here to do. So suddenly there's this rise in infertility and rise in people, you know, not being able to organically have babies. Why? We've, wow. Some people have suggested um, the HPV uh, vaccine. Have you heard, heard anything about that, that it might be contributing to it? Oh, uh, absolutely. The HPV, I have no doubt there was uh, an agenda, sorry, of sorts there. You know, it certainly has had impact on many, many people. You know, things like alopecia, you know, and ME and stuff like that. And because of the target group for HPV, uh, victims as such you know to me it speaks with itself again you know you can look at young healthy fertile people and um, using that which makes them fertile to scare them into getting the HPV vaccine and I know that sounds quite crazy maybe to some people but that's how it appears they weren't given they're not giving HPV vaccines to women my age do you know what I mean they're giving it to young they tried to give it to my son there last week in secondary school they're well, he didn't get it, obviously, but... Yeah, they tried to give it a friend of mine, son, and he says, what do you want to give it to me for? I don't have a cervix. You know? Think of who they're targeting here with HPV. They were targeting the young people literally starting out likely on their fertility journey. No other group, no other group was given HPV, offered. You know? the, the numbers are there on the fertility, aren't they? And the... The replacement, we're not, we're below the replacement level. On the, oh, on the one figure, isn't it? Is that the way the, 
I don't think. Well, we're not. We're not having enough babies to replace ourselves. To replace, yeah, yeah. But but listen, a lot of people would suggest that's the overall agenda anyway. You know, to control the population, isn't that what? I don't really want to go down that road as such, you know, because that's a that's a, a narrative that they want us all to believe, you know, that we're all going to be extinct. They want everybody terrified, you know. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it's going through this because I'm, I'm trying to bear in mind that you haven't been in. Sorry, don't forget to mute the mic. <laughs> don't worry, we all have, it takes a while to get used to it. Um, no, I'm going through these because I just want to bear in mind that you haven't been in there in two years, but still in all, you are you have an expert opinion. So I think I'm going to just read it out. Um, it was recently confirmed that trace amounts of mRNA were found in the breast milk of mothers. Um, what, what do you make of that, basically? Well, what do I make of that? I make of it, number one, uh, it's entirely plausible because anything that goes into the mother can go into the breast milk. So if mummies are being vaccinated, it is entirely plausible and most likely that something will pass through the breast milk. So so that's that, basically. Um, yeah, you have to ask yourself, why is it they're testing this? Because they do know and they are aware that they've no idea the effects of these things. We're still at experimental stage here. What they're basically doing is research. So they're at the outset of the research where we give people all these things and now we're going to check, well, is it in the breast milk? Well, does it count, does it um, impact on fertility in the long term? Does it impact on every, you know, it's experimental. Remember, the reach is unknown at this stage. So I have no doubt that it's entirely possible it's in the breast milk, of course. No doubt it probably crosses the placenta as well, which, well, obviously, given that it's vaccines in pregnancy, that, you know, is likely contributing to infant deaths. In my opinion, yeah, I, I know there was some kind of spike in um, stillbirths in Scotland around the time of the rollout, and um, I'm sure, like, there's there is figures coming out there that the, the fertility, the births are down in in certain places and stuff like that. What do you make though of it? Because here in Ireland, um, they're literally only in the last two weeks started to give them to six month old babies and upwards, and it's a three dose. Um, you know, it's staggered out. Um, but what do you make of it, say, with the releases? Have you been seeing there what was released with the Ma Hancock and the, you know, the the WhatsApp messages? Like, how do how do people square Boris Johnson saying that, you know, people under thirty five, there's nearly zero risk. Uh, if you're eighty years of age, you have about a five percent chance of death if you had a, got sick. And now, like, how does how can I can't get my head around it that we can see that that's coming from the horse's mouth from the very beginning, but yet here we are three years later and they're given these things, these experiments to, to babies. Yeah, I, I hear you, but, right? There's a couple of things there. Number one, all this stuff that's coming out the minute, and I, to be fair, I don't really keep an eye on much stuff, but just whatever comes up if I'm having the odd scroll, but I'm aware of some stuff. So imagine you're talking about these Matt Hancock tweets and all that stuff's going on the minute. Think of the timing of this. Why, why? have no doubt that whatever they want out there will be out there you know so if leaks are coming out it's because it's the time for them to come out it seems to me there's a lot of backpedaling going on you know they're trying to remind everybody um what this you know what was said what was done because remember i don't know if you remember or not on the 19th of march 18th of march 2020 before this all kicked off before lockdown and all that nonsense kicked off 
the British government put a thing up on their website that basically said we're dropping COVID-19 from a high consequence infectious disease. You know, officially, legitimately, here they are telling you this is not a high consequence infectious disease. So they they didn't tell people when you go back into the scripts, there was a lot of misdirection and a lot of confusion. But it was mostly the media that were used to propagate the lies because the people like Boris Johnson and like Boris Johnson didn't call lockdown. The people called lockdown. Boris, that speech on the 24th of March 2020, he did not call lockdown, but it was all over the papers the next day. But remember, it's his name, it'll be in the history books. So they're very careful about the words that you used to say. Do you know what I mean? So you're saying, I, I, sorry, uh, I remember in the beginning exactly what you said there, because Boris was kind of like, oh, we should let it rip and this, that and the other. And then he pivoted like, and I, I seen like Trump was actually the same. I remembered well. And, I, you know, they're kind of seemed to have a, a normal, practical approach. And then it was like someone tapped them on the shoulder and said, well, this is how we're going to do it. I'm not giving them a get out of jail free card, don't get me wrong. But it does seem like that, that there was more rational, you know, approaches. But did you say that the, who was calling for the lockdown? You're saying the people or was the media that. So he, he came out against them, but the media was calling for the lockdown. Against them, but the media was calling for the lockdown. Yes, well, it's basically, you know, the media whipped the people up in their frenzy. The government pressed the fear button and the media just got it and went, right, let's terrify the life out of everybody. And people wanted to be locked down, remember, at that time. People wanted to, you know, and wearing their masks and hiding away. And all that all happened quite early on. Although the masks didn't happen until the 24th of July, believe it or not. 24-7, when you look at the date, there's always a bit of symbolism through it for good measure, you know. But sorry, there was another part of that question, and I can't remember because I went off on the Boris Johnson. What was I, it? I think, I think he actually got it. I think he got it. It was the media were calling for it. Um, I want to go back to the midwife stuff because that's where your that's where your uh, professional your expertise lie, and uh, people are interested in hearing it because we have. I think there was a couple of we have some members that are currently pregnant and stuff. Um, let's see. What are the risks then for people that would speak out, say, like when you when you were back working and whatever else, like what's like, are you reprimanded or what's the like, is that is, is there something keeping people quiet is basically what I'm asking. Yes, I hear you. Um, well, I my personal journey, I went off sick on the 4th of April 2020 because of things that had happened even just in the first couple of weeks of COVID because it was seen as this loud mouse that didn't agree with everybody else you know and remember there was no mass learning at that time it was just all this fear stuff in work and um people didn't like my opinion that's fair enough so i was basically and i don't want to say driven out that sounds like victimhood but i mean like i felt i could not work anymore at that time so i was off for six months which was a long time to be off but before the end of that i was starting to get up and speak up and i had been in belfast at a rally or two and then I was ready to go back to work and then I done Stormont. So within, I think, two days of me be being back at work, I was being reprimanded, told I shouldn't be speaking out publicly like that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I would need to behave myself or this would go further. So they started their investigations quite early on. I went back on the 27th of September. I think I was suspended on the 11th of November. So that's how quick they went from investigation to suspension. And... Um, 
And then, of course, the trial came the following March. I resigned at the end of my trial. They were going to sack me anyway. They were going for everything they could to try to make it look like I was a dangerous practitioner. It's actually still going on. I just had my third, fourth, fifth, sixth hearing with the NMC just yesterday. Um, I am still registered, though, but they do try to get the registration off you. The chief nursing officer in the country uh, wrote to all the chief executives in the whole of the UK and the NHS to tell them basically not to give me a job. I was dangerous. You know, they, they get they get narky when you don't when you don't toe the line. So then I was probably in my local area anyway, used as an example of of what not to do, you know, because suddenly you have no job, no money, no home, all those things that come with it. But um but you either believe in what you're saying or you don't, you know, in my opinion. Fair play to you though. Like we do need we need strong people to stand up. Um it seems like a lot more women have longer births these days. Would you agree with that? And what do you think are the what the reasons for that are? Sorry, I missed one of the words there. A lot more women have a lot what? It seems like a lot more women have longer births these days. Would you agree with it? And what do you think the reasons are for that? Oh, right. Yeah, no no problem. That's that's an easy one. Um, generally, because they're not mobile or not mobile enough. You know, birth should be, you know, in a nice utopic version, birth should be a spontaneous, organic, mobile event. It is the most natural event. We were all born. Um, and that is not me minimizing people's struggles, but because, believe me, I've had a few myself and witnessed many. Um, but it's because of the way the birth world has become, this intense scrutiny of the moment of conception right through, with scrutiny then brings intervention. People they have no faith in their bodies. They think they need all this additional help. You know, that's I suppose that's where I bring a solution to the table in relation to helping people understand they don't need all the scrutiny, they don't need all the intervention, you know, and that's just a that's literally a mindset and that's how easy it is to change this. But uh people I suppose need to be ready or are in a place where they want to hear that. It's not as simple as a a one-off conversation, you know, but that's where it starts for me. Donald, that's pretty, um, hypnobirthing is becoming very trendy in the last few years. What are your opinions on that? Well, I actually, uh, a midwife that I used to work with, God rest her, she's dead now, she used to be a hypnobirther to herself, and there's some amazing principles in hypnobirth, you know, and any time, any type of sort of sovereign birth, let's call it that, because that's really the ultimate goal here, is could boil down to self-hypnosis, you know, because you talk yourself through this, you get yourself through this. Other outside interventions, even as hypnobirthing, which is great, doesn't bring anything in relation to the rest of the table, it's still something else. Everything you need is within yourself, ultimately. So in the interest of optimum outcomes, if everyone realizes that they have the power within themselves, that all they have to do is know it, well, then that's the like the top outcome, you know. Underneath all of that, you have all those other great things like, you know, hypnobirth and meditation and, and water and, and support, all those things that help you to remain in a good place to have the best birth that you can have. 
But way down at the bottom of the list are things like scrutiny and intervention and induction. You know, these are not things that bring positive birth to your table, you know. Hypnobirth is a great concept. Good stuff. Um, I, I have a question here myself. What do you feel about the scans? Do you think they're doing too many scans on, like, or, or is there any dangers behind, you know, they get, obviously you need the scan to make sure everything is all right. But you know, some people are going for these 3D scans and then they're getting another two or three scans or whatever they're getting from the, the medical establishment. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I hear you. And believe me, my mind has changed in relation to scans over the years. Right back 30 years ago when I was pregnant with my first child, you know, I had all the scans, I had all of this and all of that. And uh, while I was never really a huge fan because I could see, you know, once I was a midwife and seen up close the technology that took you know and the invasive nature you know of this thing on the woman's tummy you know but it was actually only when I was doing my PhD research that I came across because scanning was supposed to be part of my study where you were supposed to be scanning the women to assess the intervention you know long story but anyway so in order for me to justify whether or not I could scan these women I done a bit of extra research down that road and from what I found if if people really understood it I don't think they would ever have a scan again and that's just from a, a physical perspective. You know, again, scans bring unknown risk. When you realize and appreciate the technology that it takes for this thing, this probe on your stomach to go through to your baby and back out again to put that picture on the screen, you would understand why they're not really a positive intervention. I understand people want to see this and see that and everything else, but no, understand the risks that they're taking. Again, you're back to unknown risks because the risks could be so far reaching. You know, we have a lot of new diseases and things in the last 20, 30 years from the event of scans. And Lord knows what we'll have in the next 10, 20 years because of 3D, 4D, 5D scans. You know, this technology is is bringing risk. There's no doubt about that. You know, there is no doubt about that. Don't get me wrong. It's not judgment. It's up to every individual to weigh out the benefit and the risk. And, and I understand those decisions can be challenging, but know that the scans, like everything else external, bring carries its own risk. I'd, be, I'd agree with that. Probably less is more, you know. And I, I think with one of my kids, um, we didn't get all the scans. I think we got one and then we missed the middle one and we went, I don't know if we got, we got two or one. I'm not sure, but we got one less anyway. So I suppose less is more, I suppose, with any of these things. Um, What's your thoughts on the home birthing? Um, well, believe it or not, in my entire career, I was never had a home birth. But last September, I was very blessed and honoured to be at not only a home birth, but a free birth. Um, so this couple who will tell their own story in time, um, first baby and knew enough about the system to know they didn't want to be in it. And uh, had made contact with myself and we met up a few times during the pregnancy and I was there on the day of the birth and uh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing and um, brave. They were so brave, but they recognised, you know, that they, they didn't need intervention. You know, if this child was meant to get here, it would get here, you know, and she did. And all the mommy and daddy had to be was brave. And that's ultimately what it boiled down to. And believe you me, <laughs> I, I, I said my parents and everything that night, you know, I had to put my money where my mouth was too and realised, right, Sean, you, you believe that 
that was just conceived into this life will get here if it's meant to. And and I had to remind myself of that numerous times. And baby got here alive and well and all is great, thank God. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely unnerving, especially the first time. If if people are doing a home birth, like what kind of equipment, like what's the process? Do they get the same equipment or how do you like or do they go with no equipment or what way does it work? Well, that's again down to people's individual choices. You know, I, I, in my own role as myself, Shauna, I don't offer any equipment or any, I don't be listening in their baby's heart rate or any of those things because I understand now all of those things for what they are. And again, that scrutiny and intervention because there's no need for any of it. You know, I remember people used to ring me into the session, you know, I think I'm in labour. And an old midwife once taught me, you'll not think you're in labour because when you're in labour, you'll know there'll be no thinking about it. You know, women and the birth process is so innate. You know, all people have to bring to the table is fearlessness and embrace what they're going to go through. You know, that, that doesn't just happen at the moment of labour. You know, that's a process that can be learned. Those things that can be learned during pregnancy. This is why pregnancy is the length of time it is. It's, they call it a teachable window. Because this is the time in people's lives when they're actually most keen, most keen to learn new things and good things because they have a baby. They're, you know, they have a baby to think about and a baby to look after. And this is when people are much more likely to learn bravery because becoming a parent, you, you suddenly, you know, for any of other parents, you know, you suddenly are the bravest thing in the world because if anybody came near you to talk to this child, you know, you, you find a bravery that you never knew before. So. The journey to parenthood is actually an amazing time and so it can be so impactful this is why it should be done right <laughs> but uh, anyway that's where that's where we go in the future with it no i have to agree with you there i think um yeah and having that time it kind of to get yourself prepared psychologically and you know yeah so that that makes a, a lot of sense um do you find a lot of pressure is put on mothers to birth on their backs or do you find that most encourage women to try out different birthing positions? Um, sadly in a hospital setting, um, whether by encouragement or just um, subservience almost of the way themselves, you know, first thing they see in a labour room is generally a bed and most of them just get up and get on it. Um, there are other impacting factors like some staff, you know, won't aren't, aren't great with mobile birth, we'll call it that way, you know. But I'm not going to just level it at the staff here. You know, everybody has a role to play here. Um, and this is what you were saying earlier about how you empower people within the system as it is. Women and, and their partners, you know, they got to decide what they want for birth here. You know, it's, I, I remember, you know, you know, people coming in with me and they'd be like, Sean, I just do whatever you tell me. And I'm like, don't ever give your power away to somebody like that. Even though, you know, they trusted me and that was lovely and I'll take the compliment. But how disempowering for themselves to to give me the right to tell them what to do, you know, and it, it's it's such a powerful moment. You, you've got to take your power, your body, your choice, your birth, your choice. You know, if you don't want to be on your back, tell people you don't want to be on your back. Don't lie there and then go home and tell somebody else. But then you have the advent of epidurals and things like that. And with an epidural, generally they're on their back because of the position, you know, the anesthetic and all that. So it, it is down to a question of choices. I don't know any midwife who has held a woman down her back. And I, I'm just trying to be objective here, you know. 
there's an acquiescence on the part of the people as well and this whole societal expectation you go in you get an epidural and you lie there till the baby is born sort of thing you know <laughs> there's there's a lot of impacting factors more so than just people being made to if that makes sense yeah, no that makes perfect sense and i think that's a good message you know that the mother is in control you know and to be i suppose to be a sort of i just think it's when when you're a young um parent and i suppose it's a lot worse when it's a young when it's the, the mother you know they can be very nervous and afraid you know so i suppose it's it's kind of trying to get that i suppose that's why that girl was looking to you it's like oh just tell me tell me what to do and i'll do it but um yeah it's a good message that people need to um you know take take control um can you speak a little bit yeah, about I, the rights of the parent? Oh, sorry. No, you're grand. Sorry. Um, continue. No, I was just going to say, so like, even when I said in those like kind of situations where people say to me, you know, you tell me what to do. What what I would be telling them to do is believe in yourself. You know, so it it is even when people have got to that point where they're totally giving it to you. I give it back to them. You know, you can do this. I'm just here to cheer you on sort of thing. And I believe that is whether you want to call yourself a midwife, a doula, a shana, whatever. We are here to support women through birth, you know, not for them, not to disempower them, any of those things, but to be whatever it is they need because everyone needs something different. Some people might just want you to sit in the corner and be there if they want a glass of water. Some people want you to stand with them and chant with them or hold their hand or I've had women dancing in labor, anything to distract them, to keep them going and realize they can do this. All they actually need is the belief. And that's something that's something that we can help people with is believing in themselves, you know. But anyway, sorry, you were going somewhere and I interrupted. Apologies. No, that's fantastic. Um, I was just going to say, could you speak a little about the rights of the parent? I know we've covered a little bit of this on the birthing journey. And maybe you could touch on induction, pain relief, monitoring the baby's heartbeat, checking for dilation and intervention such as forceps and epistostomy. Episiotomy. Is somebody giving you a script? <laughs> script. Um, <laughs> i tell you what it is. All of, all of those things sort of fall under the one umbrella. Number one, they'll all be happen to, happening to you in a hospital, right? Um, so, and I'll just, a wee example that I think explains that too, is a woman had rang me off maybe a year ago back now, she was going up to the hospital for something and they were wanting her to wear a mask and she was giving out, now, you know, all of those things that lots of people do and that's fine. And uh, they were sort of telling her if she wasn't, she wouldn't get her treatment if she didn't wear a mask. And I know how unfair that sounds, I mean, but I says, look, the bottom line is when you're going up there for treatment from them, you're in their house. So you got to play by their rules because if you're not going to play by their rules, you're going to have drama, you know. So sometimes the question is, why are you there in the first place? Now, I know not everybody in the world is ready to jump ship and not go near hospitals to have babies. That's that's maybe a bit of a stretch for a lot of people at this point in time. But the reality is when you're in their playground, they expect a certain acquiescence to their rules. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not justifying that in any way. But that's where some of the problems start from, because even the parents come in with a mentality that doctor knows best or midwife knows best or whatever. So 
they're not all coming from any sense of empowerment within themselves. And then those that do come in empowered and all full of information, they get the backs up of the staff and then the staff <coughs> nearly go the other way on people like that, you know, so it's it's a hard one to win. But um, ultimately, people, people forget who they are. You know, it is down to your body, your choice. You can, people can say things, oh, let me put this monitor on me. Well, well, why did you let them? Well, because I had the drip in. Well, why did you let them put the drip in? Oh, well, it was overdue. Okay, you know, do you not know that you can... You know, things like this come up because it's, they call it the cascade of intervention. Once you've opened the door to one intervention, like induction, that opens the door then to so many other things. Because once you're induced, you're much more likely to need more pain relief. You're more likely to need monitoring. You're more likely to be on your back and have an immobile birth. So then you're more likely to need intervention at the end, whether that's a forceps, a vontus, a cesarean section, whatever. But the point for those decisions happened way back when you decided, yes, I'll go ahead with an induction. Because some people will say things like, oh, they told me I had to. Nobody tells you what you have to do unless you allow them. Do you, do you know what I'm saying there? You know, people people think they have to act yes because the doctor said or because the midwife said. But then where where's their, um, or there's their own empowerment? Where's their own sovereignty there? Are they just going to go along with what somebody else is telling them to do with their body, their baby? Or are they going to educate and empower themselves so they actually know, well, no, I don't want that. I don't want that process because I know that might lead to this. No, I don't want an epidural because it might lead to me having to have a catheter in or lying on my back for an hour. You know, and midwives like me came telling them the things like that. Then we're slated by the midwives who didn't. But that's just that's just internal politics. The reality is you don't know what midwife you're going to get when you get in there. So you don't be paying on them, depend on yourself. Empower yourself. Know what you want before you go in there. Do you know? I think you made some really good points there, um, kind of like what you said. Because I know from my own experience, <clears throat> I, we were, I was quite young with my first child. And um, they, they were kind of hard to deal with in, in the hospital. And they're kind of looking down their nose at you and they're snotty and whatever else. Um, and I think like the point that you made there, that it's their house. And you kind of get that feeling when you go in and they're, you know, they're all business. And I suppose if you're younger then as well, they're trying to bully and I can say bully is a very strong word but that's the type of feeling I, I remember it distinctly with my first son when we when we were in um but I think that's important like and I think what you said at the end is really important there um know what you want when you go in like have you know you need to have it in be strong in your mind what the way you want it to go so I think there were good points um let me see I want to ask you uh Oh yeah, there was something there about the induction. Um, many mothers are encouraged to be induced once they go past their due date. What's your opinion on that and on, on, on inductions? Um, my opinion on that would be, again, it's another unnecessary intervention. And sadly, the, the, the rules around induction and the, the need for in, in, induction seems to be getting more and more, you know, suddenly all these women appear incapable of having babies or going into spontaneous labour, which is nonsense, really. And I do think it's down to scrutiny again. I was actually looking back at my, my own first um, birth. was I was 17 days overdue by the time I had her. And in those days, they didn't induce you to your 14 days overdue, which for most people now would be too much for them. Um, but I realise now, looking back, 
any wonder I didn't go into labour. I was this was the first grandchild, and the scrutiny was so intense. And scrutiny impacts on the hormonal cascade, you know. So I was like, you know, the watch, watch kettle never boils. I think that's the way they put it. So I was so intently focused on getting into labour, getting into labour, because everybody was waiting on me. It actually had the opposite effect, if that makes sense, you know. Our thoughts, our thoughts literally can change that the hormonal cascade. We need the, we're much more likely to go into labour ourselves when we're in a really good place within ourselves, and that comes down to a lot of things, you know physically, emotionally, spiritually, energetically, call it whatever you want. All of those things help with getting people into labor. Um, can they do it forcefully in their synthetic ways? Of course they can. Do people in this day and age think it's more convenient to have a date to win? Of course they do. Do people actually really understand the risks they're undertaking when they go for induction? I don't believe so. But uh, yeah, these are all conversations where where pe that people can that people can learn from. I believe it's great. It's great, actually. Yourself, um, when do you believe that the right time? Like, when would you yourself feel that in, an induction would be necessary? Like, I don't know much as a as a fella. I suppose, like, would would it not come eventually? Like. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I hear you. And there was a consultant I used to work with and people used to hate him because he was awful old fashioned. But he said, uh, when the apple's ripe, it'll fall. And much as I disagreed with him on a lot of things, on this one, I have to, I have to retrospectively say, you know what, he was right. Um, and again, there's so many impacting factors, you know, to get to that point where everybody just goes into labour themselves, you know, you have a lot of all those other factors to remove from the table like scrutiny, like induction, like scans, like medication during pregnancy, because all of those things can impact also on the organic growth of the baby. So, um, you, you know, Sally, with, with the way things are these days, sometimes you have a baby that's 10 pound with a wee mommy that was never supposed to grow a 10 pound baby, you know, and that's a whole story in itself as to why those things are happening. So I, I couldn't just sit here and go, right, nobody should be induced. In an ideal world, nobody needs induction. That would be my belief. Do I understand that's not where we're at at the minute? Of course I do. But I think individual, each individual can make those decisions and can make those decisions informed ones. They've got nine months to do it. You know, they shouldn't be thinking about that the week before the baby's due. That, that These are questions that... Again, like I say, this is why pregnancy is nine months. There's actually, sorry for rattling on, but it goes straight into this. There's a period of time, the thousand days. So that's from conception to three-year-old. And that's, some would say, when you form the motherboard, you know, when people's motherboards are formed. So right from the moment of conception, you're already a parent. And with that comes huge responsibility. Actually, being a mother and a father, I believe, are the most two most impactful and important jobs on the planet. It's actually why we're here, men and women, you know, so when you strip it right back to that. So it is actually something we should be preparing our, our whole lives for to create future sp humans, you know what I mean? But but it, it's taken so lightly and it's looked at so, yeah, anyway, I, I could go on about that for months. But um, yeah, we are where we are and we're all learning. We're all learning. Yeah, no doubt. I um, this is just a question that came into my head there as you were speaking. Do you think um the modern kind of thing of deferring um childbirth to you know thirty, where before 
you know, people would have been paired off at 17 or 18. They would have had their kids around that time. Do you think that's impacting um, on fertility and on some like on some of these requirements are now, or you know, these issues are are in their head. People are deferring it. Yes, I hear you. And again, that's a, I suppose it's a societal impact, you know, as to why things went that way. In some in some cultures, still, you know, you grow up, you meet you meet the love of your life, you have the babies, and and that's it, you know. And some of them, even the like of the traveler community, that you know, seventeen, eighteen, and they're having their families together and they're, they're together for life, and that's lovely, in the old fashioned way of things. Um, all this deference of fertility, when you think about how people defer their fertility, they use medication to switch off their natural organic fertility, if that makes sense. So I believe it's ha not only does it have an impact, and I'd say lots of people do who defer their fertility do then struggle, you know, and then blame themselves. I mean, you, you've all of that stuff going on as well. But I do believe the deference of fertility has had a huge impact. You know, people aren't necessarily having babies when it was a better time in their body's life to have it, you know, but that sounds like judgment and it's not, it's not. I understand society has led us to to minimize or devalue what it is to create another human being. And I don't know that I can put it any <laughs> any deeper than that. No, I think yeah, it's a it's not it's no one's to blame. We're all been kind of kind of nudged down this this uh, path. Um, I want to ask you about the uh, the heel prick. Um, many parents are not even asked permission before this procedure takes place. Can you speak a bit about the, the heel prick test and what it's all about? I can, of course. Um, number one, it should never be happening without any parent's permission. And it would be very amiss of any parent to let anybody take their baby. Don't get me wrong. I understand it can happen, but it should never be happening without parental consent. Um, it was a test I always hated doing myself because of how you do it and baby's crying you know I was never happy with that in the last couple of years I've come to understand sadly the much more nefarious intent that that appears to be in relation to heel pricks what it's sold as on in your normal NHS everyday kind of thing is is a test for the weird and the wonderful like metabolic disorders like sickle cell anemia thalassemia cystic fibrosis all things that people would have a fear around so see always you know, tend to be quite happy when it's ruled out because generally nothing comes back from them. It's few and far between that comes back. In families where there's CF or thalassemia, sometimes they'll be much more likely to get it back, but generally nobody hears anything back after the heel prick. Um, but, and I'm sure many of you are aware of all the, the conspiracy theories that abound in relation to the heel prick, and I have to say, they all sound very plausible to me, and I would never do it again, ever. What what exactly? I can't remember me specifically them doing it when I, when I was in there for my two kids. But what is it that they do? Is it just taking a blood blood sample from the heel? Is it? And then where does that blood sample go? Is it off for testing or what's going on? There? You see, it's not right. Like say you were testing a wee baby's blood sugar. You know, you just use one of the wee the wee needles and uh, spot the blood. You know, put it in a wee test tube away you go. But with the heel prick, right? There's a particular form that the blood the blood goes on to a form, not in a bottle. 
and the bottom of the form is like um what do you call that paper papyrus paper and it has wee circles on it and you have to get the baby's blood into those wee circles right and it has to go on a certain way it's not allowed to be dabbed over it has to fill the circle you know they're like there's so much um instruction in relation to how this has to be done and generally the only time you hear back from them is if you haven't done it well enough they'll want it done again which is heartbreaking and you have to go out to their parent and do it again um so it's because the when you prick the baby's heel once you'll get maybe enough blood for the first one or the second one sometimes you have to do it again or give the foot a wee squeeze and by which stage the baby's crying the mommy's crying you nearly want to cry yourself you know it's 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 not a pretty um procedure and potentially unnecessary is that and does it go to a lab or does it is it like um what that what do you call a ph paper or something that it changes the color or something or is it, is it sent off for analysis or what happens to it do you know um no it's different than ph paper um it is sent off in in the north sent off to a lab in belfast so that's all the trusts would be sent them to the same place um so it's centralized i can't speak to what happens to it after that you say there are many who would speak to what likely happens after that but I imagine that's where initial testing of the blood is done. What happens to those results or what happens to those pieces of paper after that, I, I can't speak to, you know. Oh, thanks a million. No, because look, I've heard, as you said, you touched there about conspiracies and some people say that it's sent off and archived in the Vatican. There's all sorts of weird conspiracies around it. Um, what was I going to ask you? The vitamin K shots, Would you? can you talk a little bit about them? I can, yes. I was actually asked about this just a week or two ago. Um, I've given it numerous times in my life. Sadly, I never would again. When my children were born, they used to have vitamin K oral at that stage, so it was just in their mouth. And I remember <laughs> I remember being sent home with two extra bottles of this vitamin K at the time because my daughter was being breastfed. And I remember thinking, how can you tell me she needs something extra when she's breastfed? You know, I couldn't understand it. But I've subsequently figured that it's because it's added to the formula milk, but not even get into formula milk. But vitamin K is sold as a vitamin. It's actually, it's connecting, but um, it, and I hear that it's sold as a vitamin to try and minimize it again. And it's supposed to be to guard against a very rare disease, um, vitamin, vitamin K deficiency bleeding. They've called it hemorrhagic disease in the newborn. They've called it a different few different things over the years because... On very rare occasions, there are babies who, after a traumatic birth, will have an internal bleeding bleed out. But um, aside from that very rare, and that, that's not minimizing it, that's what vitamin K is sold as to stop. But um, I, I put this, and this is what I put to the person the other day. If you go around the neonatal unit or the ICU and you ask the question, <laughs> did this baby have vitamin K? Yes, it did. I would go for again maybe ninety nine percent of them because again people people don't really question it. Sure, it's just vitamin K. I have read some other things in relation to vitamin K and come across them. And again, like everything else, particularly anything from a pharmaceutical direction, it does not come without risk. It does not come without risk. So you have to ask yourself: Was my baby at risk in the first place in order that it would need vitamin K? And 
some, some midwives pitch it as, oh, your baby doesn't have enough when it's born. Well, I put it to them that God doesn't make mistakes. And I'm not being flippant. I mean, we are not born deficient unless there is a reason for that deficiency. Um, so it'd be an easy no for me as a midwife, I, as, as a person. I would never give it again or want it for any baby belonging to me. If that makes sense again. Hi, I'm not sure where Gavin's gone, but I can continue asking questions if you're okay with that. Yeah, go ahead, CF, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just on the vitamin K shot, have you ever witnessed any negative consequences of vitamin K not being administered? Um, I'm not I'm not sure that you could quantify uh, someone not being at risk for not being administered. I suppose you're asking me, have I ever baby died or affected by vitamin K deficiency bleeding? No, I haven't. No, no, not in my practice, no. So in, in your opinion, is there ever a time when the vitamin K shot might be needed? For example, if a baby has a has hematoma encephalitis or something like that? Again, I suppose back to in in an ideal world, I would be, I I am anti pharmaceuticals, you know, and that's my position at this point in time. Um, that doesn't mean I I don't understand why people think there are needs at certain times. So again, it would come back to risk benefit ratio. It would be that individual situation, those individual parents making that individual decision. It wouldn't be something I would um, dictate upon or you know adjudicate upon. Do you know what I mean? But I, I feel, for me, no pharmaceuticals are risk-free. No, that's great advice. Um, so also, I was wondering if we could touch upon placenta. Um, would you like to talk a wee bit about cord clamping and how important it is? How, how important it is to not. <laughs> um, when I first came into practice, it was all very, you know, cords were being cut even sometimes just in the head was ideal if the cords around the neck they were clamping and cutting at the neck and it was always a big mad rush when the baby was born to get the cord cut um then in about when did i meet my 2015 i got this new student she was amazing and one of the first things she was asking me about was a delayed cord clamping and i subsequently became friends with a woman called amanda burley i don't know some of you might be familiar with amanda she's like wait for white that whole campaign <laughs> about not cutting the cord early and the more and more I understand about the placenta, which is the most amazing organ in the world, by the way, none of us got here without one. Um, again, we shouldn't be interfering. Let be, let it be until it, at least, at least until it is white, until you know that all that passage of whatever needs to get to the baby has got to the baby. I would be completely hands off in relation to that at this stage. Um, I know some people then go ahead and. Uh, whether encapsulated or whatever it is to do with them. and listen to each their own i cannot say that anything placental would do you any harm like i say it is the greatest the greatest organ in in the universe because without a placenta we don't get here you know each and every one of us had one um so yeah i, I think it's actually so disrespectful to jump and clamp and cut when this live organ is still is still given what it needs to to your child so you just mentioned there about um, eating the placenta. I'm just wondering, 
Do you know, like, what are your thoughts on eating the placenta? And do you know anyone who's done it? I know the FDA are vehemently against it, but it's becoming trendy now with celebrities like the Kardashians. Um, is that something you'd advise or do you know much about it? To be honest with you, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't be advising anything. I probably don't know enough about it to talk about it at any length, but from my feelings on it, just from my feelings on it, I haven't read much. From my feelings on it, I don't believe that it is to be eaten. That that wouldn't be my thing. I don't I don't think that really speaks of logic for me. Um, and then on the various agendas and all that stuff aside, and celebrities, I would be staying out of that territory for my own self. But um, like I say, I don't think it's I don't think it is for me or anyone to to adjudicate upon. Even the FDA or whatever. Listen, it's your body, your choice. You want to eat your percent and knock yourself out, you know, but it is what it is. I don't think it's there to be eaten. Although, look at the animal kingdom, you know, so, and the jury's still out for me on that one. Yeah, no, it's, it seems like there's mixed messages coming from FDA and celebrities, but um, um, we uh, touched on... Um, conspiracy theories earlier regarding uh, heel pricks. I'm just wondering, do you know anything about where the placenta goes when it's taken away? I am funny you should ask that because that was a question that people used to ask me when this stuff all first came out and especially after the rabbit holes in relation to all of the above. Um, where I worked, and I only ever worked in one trust in my life, unless the parents were taking it themselves and very few did, it, it was double bagged and put into a bucket. There was no name, no identifier on the placenta unless something had happened to the baby. Something happened with the baby, the placenta would have been um, put into formaldehyde, put in a bucket, labelled appropriately in a way off to pathology. But in the main, in your normal everyday people in room one, room two, you having babies, the placentas were in a clear plastic bag, unidentifiable in a bucket. Now, I cannot speak to where that bucket went after that. The lab, from our, from us, it would have went to the lab. After that, I can't speak to that. I know there are lots of people who might have many theories on it, but, but know this, that they were not identifiable when they went to the lab. So I don't see that there would have been any good to anyone for anything too nefarious. But that's just opinion, to be honest. That's interesting. Thanks for that. Um, terms like birthing person and chest feeding are not just becoming commonplace, but they're becoming enforced in some hospitals in the West. Have you, did you become aware of this just before you left or um, do you have anything to say about that? <laughs> I usually have something to say about everything, to be honest, but yes, just before my resignation, that sort of stuff was starting to come up. There was even a study, something about should midwives call the baby he or she, you know, boy or girl or whatever, all this nonsense and distraction, in my opinion. Um, for me, it is very simple. On this earth, there are males and females. Females give birth to babies. Males help them make it. <laughs> it's that simple, you know, and that is not me dismissing or minimizing anyone else's perceptions or their journeys. That's just me stating my position, that I we are male or female. The females have the babies, the females have the breasts to breastfeed. Um, you know, to, it's just very, very simple for me on that one. 
Um, that's refreshing to hear. I, I heard a midwife say that um, it doesn't matter what sex your baby is at birth because they'll decide their own gender eventually anyway. So it's, it's nice to hear wow. that. Wow. Um, the, these terms go against a lot of basic biology. Were many of your colleagues receptive to it and using these terms or what, was there any pushback from them? Um, again, I can only speak to two years ago, um, and I suppose just pre-COVID, if that's what you want to call it, because that's when those conversations were starting to be had. At, th at that time, I don't actually think any of us thought it was going to go anywhere. You know, it was it sounded like such nonsense at the time. I actually can't believe how quickly that agenda and that narrative has become ingrained in the service. Like it's, it's quite incredible how quickly they got it in. But Listen, if they want an agenda push, they'll push it. And people who are being paid to do their job will just follow orders and just go on with it, you know? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of things have changed in the last two years by the signs of it. Um, so uh, we talked a lot about the, the woman and the baby, but do you have any advice for fathers on here and how they could best support their partner? Oh, absolutely. And um, one of the one of the greatest bits of advice is be involved, be involved. You know, the journey to parenthood is a three way, it's it's three way, mother, father, child. And um, my research that that was never finished, but it will be someday. That was that was the principle was can the co creation of a bespoke sonic environment impact positively on the relationship between mother, father, child? Because by that stage, I had realised that is literally the most powerful connection in the universe man and woman come together to create life wow you know so the system sadly doesn't seem to lending to bringing dads into it much you know but and for many reasons we're not getting to that at the minute but i think the onus is on anyone who picks their baby daddy or baby mommy to journey together in this process because the synergistic effect of mommy and daddy coming together in this process is, is so impactful so impactful potentially potentially so impactful you know so i think dad's got to step up to the plate here too and don't let themselves be sidelined this is their child too this is their child too and this is what in the middle of all that nonsense when they weren't letting daddies in for birth it's as well i wasn't in service because i i don't think i could have helped in temper how dare they keep a man outside when his partner was having his baby you know two people make this baby Two people should prepare for this baby and two people should rear this baby. Idyllic as it sounds, that's in the interest of optimum outcomes, that's how it should be, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's great. It's it's absolutely awful that many fathers were not allowed to be part of the birth of their, their children. Um, is there any recommended reading or courses or anything that you would recommend to parents who are soon-to-be parents or, or who are trying to conceive? <laughs> well, I, I I can't not not recommend me. I would love any parents to come to me, sit and have a chat with me and, you know, signpost them. On. That's the, for me, that's what the, I don't know if you know, you're familiar with the care plan. This is what my life's work is all about, is about helping to prepare people for parenthood, bringing all my own skills, you know, collectively with everybody else, collectively with the parents, creating their bespoke care plan, you know, for their journey to parenthood. Um, I think this is what we're all here to do. Remember how it's supposed to be done, you know, bring back that 
sanctity of birth and, and parenting. It's such a gift, such a gift to be a parent. Um, I used to say to the girls in work, you know, because I was Miss Breastfeeding, I was like, give me, give me new parents for one hour just to myself and let me talk to them because I, I, I knew I could help them. You know, at that stage, they just want somebody to say, keep it simple, say the things that will get them through them early weeks. And once you get through that, you're playing. So if we if, if we were able to get all new parents, you know, before they start their journey and talk about what, what it takes to become a parent, you know, there's plenty of reading out there as well, of course. And people like Suzanne Zedek, she's a clinical psychologist that speaks to the pre-birth journey. She was amazing. Um, Inga May Gaskin. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of, I should ask my daughter, she was amazing, the, the research she'd done. But, um, yeah, me too. You can come to me as well. That's great. So um, if anyone on here would like to get in contact with you, what, what's the best way for them to do that or where, where can they find you? Still there, you're going to be quiet. My internet dropped. Sorry about that, Shauna. Very embarrassing. Completely went. Oh, sorry, I was talking away there. I thought it was on, and I'm not. Um, just to start, just yeah, about, about yeah. contact points. So I was just saying. Sorry, my internet's not, not great, Sean. I continue there. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, no, no worries. It was just the if anybody wants to get in touch with me, if they have my phone number, fire away, send me WhatsApp is the best. And if they don't, send me an email to careplan at outlook.com. Um, and if there's any, if you're in an area where you know there are groups of people or technically, you know, a, a, a number of people who would be interested in hearing more specifically about that, so just, you know, give me a shout. Say, right, we have people here, you know, when you come, that's what I can offer. You know, I'm sure there's many more people can offer any other things, but. That's when I can offer. I rarely refuse an invite, you know, unless there's something with my children. Shauna, Shauna, would you be willing to take a question from the audience if there's anybody there that might have something that we haven't touched on this evening? Of course, yeah, of course, yeah, that's no problem. Guys, if guys, if you've any if you've any question for Shauna, because we've held her, we've held her up for for a, a, quite a long time so if anybody has any question to ask her now's your chance okay just throw up the hand and we'll let you talk to her okay just let john joseph in there first i think he was there or whoever you've opened up no, paddy's free first paddy's going ahead hi shauna um i just wanted to talk to you about uh, well it's something that happened to me in africa um, as a white man in darkest Africa, they think you're an expert on everything. Well, um, a particular woman was pregnant and, um, you know, the dates are, are never calculated. It happens when it happens. But the, the head was in inverted position. You know, it looked like it was going to be a breech birth. And, and they asked me what, uh, what can be done. I thought, well, goodness me. Anyway, I looked it up on the internet and there were some exercises. And uh, she did these exercises, the baby turned, and then a couple of days later she gave birth. 
Um, have you had any experience of that uh, kind of uh, problem? I mean, normally that would have been induced, but um, the exercises seem to do the trick, which was great. Um, oh, I hear you, and thank you for sharing that. That's a lovely story, and it and it speaks it speaks to me very logically, you know, because the breech position just happens. You know, some babies adopt that position for whatever reasons. But there are positions that the mummy can adopt to try and encourage turning round. There's also a thing called moxibustion. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's a it's a herb, you know, and there's a procedure for tying the moxibustion. But there is also the absolute chance of a breech birth being very successful in the right circumstances. That wouldn't always be in a hospital, number one, because they're terrified of them and there's so much fear in the room. And number two, again, it's back to the position of the woman and she's less likely to be in an optimum position for a breach in a hospital as she would be out on the, the wilds of Africa. You know, she'd be much better placed to to have a breach birth successfully, somewhere like that. But uh, well done you for thinking it through like that. It was a great answer you gave me. But you haven't actually um, advised anybody to do any exercises for turning the baby into the um, normal position. Oh, no, I would have done. Yes, we would have had women in maybe 36, 37 weeks and baby was still breached. I, I would have been advising them of different positions to take that might encourage the breach to move. Yes, yes. Okay, thanks. That's grand, yeah. Um, John Joseph there, uh, I'll free you up and you can ask uh, Sean a question. One moment. Go ahead, John. Hello, Shauna. No, e mucker. John McCack, Shauna. Oh, are. hello. Sorry, I keep forgetting that this is on mute. Hello, lovely to hear from you. You keeping well? Yes, yes, I'm good. All's good. Keep fighting the fight. Here, just wanted to say kind of a different tangent, but do you remember we had conversations and I said you um we were talking about the trilogy and I said you there's only one trilogy we need to be worrying about. I says um the what what's gonna happen this in the future is gonna be a trilogy. I said three things if you remember. I said um the immigration, the attack on religion and the attack on the body. Do you remember that conversation? Yes, yes, the parts were coming back to me. It's been a while, but I hear what you're saying. I'm not keeping all that, but it's great to hear from you. Um, good girl, keep fighting. Good girl. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah Ragnar um, in there next, will we? Yes, yeah, Ragnar, go ahead. Hello, Shauna. Hello, how are you? I was listening to you, um, absolutely brilliant. Um, lovely guest, no, and uh, it was reminding me of my mother's journey from the Royal as a midwife on a black bicycle up and down the Falls Road with her wee medical bag delivering babies. Um, and then she became a staff nurse here when she married my father in uh, Corian, in the old Corian hospital. But I do have a question. Now, you 
come across as a really, really, really caring nurse, and you're pass you were passionate about your job. Um, but nowadays, I find when you go to hospitals, it's more like a meat grinder. If you get what I mean, you're in and you're out. You're in and you're out. Um, when I was when I first broke my back, my mother says to me, back in back in the eighties, you're a working man. You were you you were cared for first to get back out to work because you have a family to raise. Now you're just put on a a list. You know you might see a consultant three years down the road. Where do you think it all went wrong? Is my question. Yes, I hear you, and that's a really good question, actually. And um, and ultimately, I think it begins and ends with care. And I know my name's Shauna Cure, and, and it goes a long way, but I mean care, C-A-R-E. You know, sadly, the caring professions don't seem to care anymore. But I am going to throw in some mitigation from a staff perspective or for a staff perspective. The caring's been put out of them because the expectations upon those who are supposed to be caring staff, it's all about computer work and get them in and get them out. You're exactly right. You know, it has become production line almost, you know, get them in, get them delivered, get them out. They forgot how to care for people. And it's such an innate thing. And it's not a thing you need to go to university for or teaching college for or anything else. You either care or you don't. So you can bring that to any job you do. You know, there's no more caring than a hairdresser. I have to say when they're hairdressers and you come out feeling cared for. How many people come out of the hospital or the doctors feeling cared for? When I when I lo I lost my first wee son many years ago, he was still still born, my wee son. And uh, the wee doctor at the time, it was the first time, I'll never forget her, that she came across a stillbirth and she was the one, you know, who scanned me. And um, a story for another time, a story on his own. And but she cried and she cried with me. And I was only a young wee mommy myself and I was devastated. But it mattered to me that she cared. And I hear you, not enough people seem to care anymore. That's what we need to bring back to the world, I believe. That's fantastic. That's fantastic, Shauna. And I just have one final question. I think we've held you held you on the chat here for quite a while. Um, what, what do you, what do you think um about a woman or you know a um a couple, you know if if something did go wrong and um they wanted they wanted not not to receive a blood transfusion in case they thought it was you know from vaccinated people. Um, is there any facility in Ireland or the UK where you can access if you know that if you didn't want unvaccinated blood? Sorry, not the question's kind of a bit muddled, but you know what I mean. No, no, I, I do know what you mean. And uh, for me, there's a couple of strands in what you're talking about there. Um, number one, people make fear based decisions a lot, right? So the fear in that decision is, what if I get vaccinated blood, right? Um, and I understand that fear, and very real fear, and I hear you, but, right? Um, I believe, it's my belief that we're here, those who are conceived into this life are here until they're chosen to be taken from this life, however that is. 
and we as human beings have free will and we make our choices in between and when you remove the fear from those choices like i say i'm, I'm able to remove the fear because i think i'm here or i feel i'm here till i'm called i'm here till i'm called so that allows me to make decisions without fear because i don't think i'm going to die because i'm a decision because i'm only going to die when it's my time so i can i personally decision making less fearfully if that makes sense the other aspect of it is if they're putting themselves in a position where they might end up needing a blood transfusion then you got to ask why you know because it's back to cherry picking the service if people are going into the service to be interfered with it as such for want of a better word that interference brings risk and and therefore you're setting yourself up to have to make decisions like what if i need a blood transfusion you know i know i'll never be make a choice like that because i will not be in their hospitals as a patient ever ever and and you know i know i know that's not a place that everybody's in and that's okay i'm just saying that the fearlessness takes the problems out of the decision making and and fear that comes from a place of faith and that's not religious that's not religion that's not anything like that it's ultimately faith i believe we're here we're called and that helps me through many decisions i hope that helps in some way to answer that question good stuff big big silence there <laughs> Um, you were brilliant, Shauna. Um, a wealth of information and everything. My internet was going bad, but look, we got great stuff. And um, Grieva there as well, she jumped in. So thanks a million for coming on. Listen, not, not a problem. Anytime. I, I'm always up for questions. I love questions, actually. I think that's how we all learn each other, talk to each other, listen to each other. You know, that's what we're here to do. All that matters is we learn. Yeah, there's a lady called Elaine on there. Um, she has her hand raised. I'll just see if she has a quick question. Sorry now. Elaine, have you a question there? You... I do, yeah. I don't actually have much of a question, but more to actually correct. Just actually say to Shauna that she is actually just a wonderful person to actually come on. Re not even raise these issues but just actually explain them to people of how much can actually be steered away from in hospital facilities we can do it on our own 100 percent, but we are never told that ever ever we do go in we do say to the doctor and the midwife oh well you know best you know best take me as i am more or less like a slab of meat and just hope to good God that we're giving back our children. It's it's actually so reigniting in life to actually see that there actually is people out there who actually know, have seen and are of nothing more than a caring heart. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, um, I think, is there anybody else now? Because I really need to let Shona go because she's been so generous. Um, Melissa, um, you've your hand raised there. A really quick one now, Melissa. Thank you, Pierre. 
Um, Shauna, thank you for your truthfulness, your honesty and your bravery and letting people know that no fear and asking questions is the way forward. You're a very brave lady and we are blessed to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for that. Um, Thank you very much, Ian. I'm very humbled by that. I listen. We're all here to do whatever it is we are to do, and I'm happy to play whatever role it is I have to play. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, Shauna, you were fantastic, and you've given so much information there. And um, I'm sure, I'm sure, um, everyone that listened in tonight have can walk away knowing. Um, you know the steps that they can take if if they're going down the parenthood journey or they are on the on the way to be a parent and it's absolutely fantastic and uh, well well done you for for being forefront in speaking out and and helping parents who may not have the answers figure out um, a process that works for them you're absolutely fantastic and we definitely 100 percent will get you on in a few weeks and I'll 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 send you um, a recording of this to put up on your channel as well, because I'm sure some members from your group probably like to hear you tonight because you're absolutely a powerhouse. Well done, you. Thank you very much. Go and meet my road.